Hey, welcome to the Morning Mic Check. I'm Pat Brown here with Mike Metzger. Mike and I have known each other for a while now. I first met him around 2010, and he's become one of the key mentors in my life. Over the years, we've had countless conversations, and in almost every one, I've walked away having discovered something new. Mike has this unique ability where he can reframe a conversation, and you begin to discover a deeper reality around you. It's a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'm releasing these conversations as an invitation to follow me as I go down that rabbit hole. Oh, good morning, Mike. Good morning. We're still making our way through uh, through a list of books, and um, the next one on our list right now, I think, is is quite uh, provocative. the The title is "Bad Religion: How We Became a Nation of Heretics" by uh, by Ross, and you're going to have to help me on the last name. But, I can't uh, wait. I think I think do that. Why don't we yeah. just call him do that? Yeah, yeah. It's T O U T H A T. Yeah. Um, but yeah, quite a provocative title. Uh, I think it would be helpful to have, you know, start off with a brief overview and we'll jump in from there. Yeah. A little background here for listeners. I'd never heard of Ross Duthad until 2005, kind of his debut. He wrote an article in The Atlantic, March 2005 issue, if you're a subscriber. It's called The Truth About Harvard. And the subtitle is, It may be hard to get into Harvard but it's easy to get out without learning much of enduring value at all. Hmm. And we're off to the races with that one. It's a, um, it's funny in terms of uh, within like two, three paragraphs, he gives you an excerpt from a paper he wrote at Harvard. And I read that very brief excerpt, but I remember thinking, what, what, what are you talking about? And I think his next line is similar to that. He goes to this day, I have no idea what I was saying. But his point was, he said, for this course, some anthropology or something, we had to go to a museum uh, three times and look at some Native American artifacts and then write a paper of which he said, regardless of what we all wrote, we all got A's. Wow. So his point about Harvard was, he said, you you don't go there to get a great education as much as you go there from the network. Yeah. That is fascinating. I also think that uh, was what made him... I was looking in his the little bio here, the youngest op-ed writer for the New York Times. Yes. I mean, there's an example, by the way, of uh, what James Davison Hunter makes in his book, um, um, How to, you know, How to Change the World. That's not the title, is it? Isn't it To Change the World? Yeah, To Change, yeah. sorry. If you're an erudite person, To Change the World. <laughs> no, we're not making fun of it. It makes a really good point that it's dense overlapping networks of... Uh, influential institutions and individuals. So here, yes, he was the youngest. I think he graduated in 02 or somewhere in there. Within a few years, he's writing for the New York Times. And to this day, um, uh, he's, I call him, call him, there's one of these few little twinkling lights in the universe of the New York Times. Um, and he is a, a conservative Catholic um, and uh, has written quite a number of things. But that first article was a hoot. It's on the, it's at the Atlantic again, if you're interested in getting it. And um, lives now with this family, I believe, in Connecticut. But all that to say, so in, uh, a couple of years later, I'm trying to think of the exact year, I think it was uh, 2012 or somewhere in there, he wrote a little book called uh, A Bad Religion, A Nation of Heretics. Now, the fascinating thing is that I think the average reader would go, well, he's certainly not talking about me. I'm a Christian. I would also bet 
the average reader, myself included, definitely at the time of this release, doesn't know what heretic means. That's right. And hence, that's the fascinating point and the provocative use of the title, which I think, therefore, makes it a book worth reading. What is the, uh, what does heretic mean? Have you heard? Everybody knows the term. And what do you, when you think of a heretic, what do you think of? <laughs> this is going to sound silly, but when, when I, before I actually understood the definition, there's a, <laughs> there's a religious theme to the Halo video games. And uh, there's th there's an element of heretics in there. So frankly, I always th thought of that. <laughs> well, Don't judge me. Yeah, tough. Oh, um, but interesting. Well, I wouldn't dream of judging. You know, in in there, the, uh, the the you know the heretic is someone who's going against the main faith, and so that's kind of what I always originally thought heretic was was someone yeah. who's going against the faith. That's right. Um, and actually, the, the term first appears. Uh, it was Irenaeus. Uh, one of the church fathers who wrote a, a, an immense volume called Against Heresies, and he was listening to heresies that day. Uh, by the way, we're going to get back to you. Uh, we wouldn't dare judge you uh, because the uh, thought says that's part of bad religion today, is you say to someone, but I'm not judging you. And people <laughs> say, and don't you dare judge me. <laughs> but the, uh, the term comes from the Greek uh, heresis, which means chosen, it means to choose. And so a heretic is someone who goes against tradition and the collective wisdom of the church and chooses their own formulation of the faith. Yeah, that sounds quite relevant. That deserves uh, a, more, a pregnant pause as they say which listeners that's what it was didn't we didn't check out we didn't close <laughs> on that one it's the uh now there's more we can say about that but the uh as we often say if you get nothing more out of this uh, podcast a um a heretic is someone who interprets scripture for themselves in other words less what it means and more what it means to me this is how I understand this passage. By the way, you know who was considered to be the first great heretic way back in the second century in the church? It was Arius, and Arius was the one who, who was, they were, they were wrestling with uh, Jesus, is the Jesus nature. Uh, is he fully God, fully man? And Arius said, he's fully God, but he's not fully man. And that, uh, that debate raged for quite a while. By the way, it got so intense that uh, when the, in one of the great councils um, uh, convened, one of the bishops there, one of the saints there, was his name was Nicholas. Yes, that St. Nicholas. Wow, who becomes, so Became so irate with Arius that he punched him. And uh, <laughs> now out of all this uh, came the Nicene Creed. Jesus, God from God, light from light, very God from very God, begotten, not made. All that language essential to cementing in the church that we didn't, uh, we didn't conjure this up or uh, sort of craft our own tailor-made understanding of Christianity, but we were sitting within the great apostolic tradition. And so a heretic is someone who uh, chooses for themselves uh, what they believe about the gospel, discipleship, 
Jesus, uh, what constitutes the church. That's a biggie, by the way. And uh, it wasn't until I read uh, Leslie Newbigin, who was a missiologist, uh, Church of Scotland. He went to the Hindus and came back to, uh, yeah, returned back to the Western world after uh, several decades in India. I was just stunned at uh, how sort of the scales fell from his eyes. And in one of his books, he, he noted how in pre-enlightenment society, he called it, there are only a few heretics in the original sense of the word. That is to say, only a few people who made their own decisions about what to believe. And Arius would be one of those. Why before the Enlightenment? What happened with the Enlightenment? Well, the the Enlightenment is, uh, I mean, I, I guess I'd take take a guess to say there's a move away from the body to the mind. So there's a thinking element. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, an, there's an individual element. That's and, your biggie. Yeah, you know, when you put those two together, you can't help but say, well, you know, when I when I read this or when I think on this, this is what I discover or the meaning I get from it. That's right. Um, or that doesn't make sense to me. So um, this is fascinating because you do see predating Duthat's book on the Nation of Heretics. So I actually think um, he only picks up the story from the 1950s. Uh, I would propose for uh, listeners, if you pick up the book, the, the, uh, the big benefit from this is to reframe for you how you understand a heretic and why I believe Duthat is right. It's a nation of, we're a nation of heretics, primarily because we were not founded as a Christian nation. We were actually constituted during the third wave of enlightenment that hit America's shores. So we're an enlightenment nation. And as uh, Robert Bella pointed out you know, in his book, um, Individualism and Commitment in American Life, 1985 book, he noted the uh, essential uh, habit or the essential tradition that's basic to American identity is individualism. And so I determine what constitutes a church, a church service, liturgy, discipleship, formation, the gospel, the Eucharist, all of these things. And if there is some mysterious element there's something that just doesn't simply strike me as right and i plant my own church that will form that will shape how i understand the church sure and you know church hopping being a great example of yeah. this which is you know that's an interesting one because i think I've talked with many believers who don't see that as heresy, of course, but they, you know, they see it as uh, not a good thing necessarily. Um, But I think some might argue, well, there is a good thing because there are so many flavors of church that you can find the one you like. Um, 
but so you said it reframes what it means to be a heretic. How, how does he do that? Well, he would just take you again back to the original meaning of the word. And then he would uh, basically said that the basic identity that actually goes all the way across the boards, um, doesn't matter if you're Protestant or Catholic, it's a choose your own Jesus mentality. And, uh, and as he puts it, it, it uh, you unintentionally then or unknowingly, you screen out the uh, parts of the New Testament or, or what have you that you either don't understand or you don't, mm-hmm. you know, buy into. Or, uh, you know, I really see this, for example, um, in the uh, most, most of my friends, most people I know, especially the evangelical, would have next to no idea what happened in the church after Acts 28, even though there's a lot of Acts 29 movements out there. But the first three, 400 years of the church are uh, absolute blank. Yeah. And so because of that, as you well know, and we've talked about before, you know, one of the church fathers talked about scripture is never a matter of one's individual interpretation. And yet a hallmark of American Christianity is groups gather all the time to, to uh, come up with their own individual interpretation. Now, they won't call it that uh, because I've done this. So I, I know of what I speak, which is pretty rare, but this is why it's such an exciting podcast. I might actually be saying something. There. <laughs> but we'd always get together and, uh, uh, you know, you form these groups and you think about it, there's really not a spiritual director in the group because that too, that... Uh, had the idea of a spiritual director where most would go, ooh. Now we have discipleship groups and those, I think, especially I found as a church planter pastors, there just wasn't a sufficient stock of uh, gray hairs with um, sage wisdom. They, they, they just, there wasn't, but we were, had, we were trying to get everybody in small groups and we'd round them up in small groups and people would get together. And what you're really doing, I hate to say it, but it's it's groupthink, and it's also uh, pooling our ignorance, because if someone were to say, I'll throw something out there, I don't mean to be provocative, but um, prior to the the Enlightenment, um, for 1,500 years in the Church, the Eucharist was seen as the source and summit of formation, and... um, the real presence of Christ. There was actually, you actually are literally taking the body and blood of Christ. Well, in with the Enlightenment, which McGilchrist says, begins a slide into the territory of the left hemisphere, the left hemisphere is not c- conducive to paradox. That is, paradox meaning two truths that are held, they seem to be opposed to one another, but they're actually are held together. They're both equally true and so jesus can say the thief on the cross today i will be with you in paradise and yet we also know he descends into hell you go how can those things be true isn't that a contradiction no not when you understand what happened on the cross and in the same way you have this view that um you know this is the real presence of christ hence there's extreme care taken in how it is prepared and so on and so forth and that's I don't want to go down that rabbit trail. My point would be you don't have a break in that view until you have the Reformation and the Enlightenment. 
because again, you know, choose your own mentality. Uh, that puts it this way. The point of a heretics is that all of your desire, deepest desires are God's desires and he wouldn't dream of judging you. And so he blesses whatever way you conjure up what would be a church. And that's exactly what I did when I planted a church in 1987. Now, I really had no guide. I had seminary education. And uh, in seminary, I was taught this was this is what the church is. And um, so the seminary I went to, we'll leave the name out, but emblazed on, emblazed on the seal of the of this seminary above the the chapel is preach the word and so the heart of the church every week is to preach the word which of course is great value except prior to the enlightenment that would have been seen as heretical and so the problem is just even me saying that for a number of perhaps even every all of our four listeners there's just something inside you go what i mean there's something that it 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 will evoke in you uh a no way or a more crass way to put it who the hell are you what the hell do you mean by that and what we mean by that is that this is a hard truth for americans is the faith is not about us, and I don't use this word pejoratively, but uh, conjuring or pulling together with a group of friends, here's what the church is. Which we know, by the way, for most, it is an option to growing in the faith. It's not essential. This church that no loss um because you can hear you can hear the word online you can go these are all indicative of what he means by a nation of heretics and he was piggybacking by the way if anybody wants to read this by uh the great sociologist peter l berger and um he wrote a book years ago and it was called the heretical imperative berger was a sociologist by the way up at boston university the heretical imperative. That has everything to do with what Dufat wrote. What do, what do you make of that title? Uh, also provocative. <laughs> Not sure what else to make of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, he talks about, he's talking about, by, uh, he says, most Americans feel that it's essential, non-negotiable. It is an imperative that they be free to choose Mm. for themselves what to believe and what religious institutions they'll be committed to, if any. Uh, The Americans have enshrined the right to decide for themselves which church they'll attend, how often they will attend, and to what degree they'll be involved. The heretical imperative. It is imperative that I have the right to choose and if you read Mm -hmm. the enlightenment thinkers voltaire who said with exclamation mark dare to think for yourself choose for yourself and what he was saying was all the religious institutions out there 
you cannot trust them. Choose for yourself. So going back to uh, our original book, the, the Nation of Heretics, mm-hmm. where where does he go? I mean, how much is he, how much are we hearing, like what you've gleaned from this and, and what he's originally saying? Is he, does he get into this idea of small groups pulling ignorance to, to that extent or does he not go that far? He, he doesn't go that far. In fact, uh, he, you know, he would, uh, this is all, you think about, uh, think about the world has changed since 2005. Yeah. Um, he would say that since the 1950s, we've gone from a nation in which there was at least a nominally Christian culture, I guess he'd call it, that was animated by, um, Protestants and Catholics who had some social gravitas. For example, uh, you know, he mentions Billy Graham. He would mention Reinhold Niebuhr. He would mention um, Fulton Sheen, who actually, with his uh, show, uh, his uh, where he preached, the great uh, uh, Archbishop in New York City, he won an Emmy. And I think he would say, "Can you imagine that happening today?" Um, again, this is in 2005. But he would say, "What's happened is." What was understood as orthodoxy has been mutilated because orthodoxy was first of all has to be institutional in the same way that we uh, here's some of the orthodoxies in the american constitution uh, a presidency that is defined by these brackets these boundaries as Robin said, institutions are reality-defining and boundary-forming. And if you transcend those boundaries, you can be impeached. Uh, now, set aside the current... Well, he would... Let's put it in another context. I think he's fair to say he would say that this institution and this orthodoxy is being mutilated. And there's a lot of evidence for that. But institutions can generally withstand that or the nation collapses if we no longer have uh, checks and balances between uh, the executive branch, the presidency, the legislative branch, and the judicial. We don't have a nation if that collapses. And that is under duress right now. That's a good way for him how he frames American Christianity is under duress because the institutions, the understanding of institutional thinking that created boundaries and defined reality, reality being, for example, what is the church by definition, is being mutilated. Now, the challenge in this is that by far and away, the average Christian American would have no idea how it's being mutilated. Yeah, and what's also coming to mind is the the, the house church kind of movement, and and how many different churches I've heard, you know, started in the living room of the lead pastor's home, sure, something like that. And so, mm-hmm. I, is yeah. I guess it's just a question of, you know, many can see that as a, is a good thing. Um, and even, even the, 
idea of, you know, think for yourself. The, the good of that is a genuine, you know, belief and buy-in as opposed to just, you know, going with the flow, going along with the motion. I think that's part of what the individual culture of America is about. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's either, the, you know, the author's thought on that or, or how do you interpret some of those things? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, the intent is certainly noble to want to reinvigorate, to revitalize, uh, in what's really become a nominal Christianity. And that, and, and by, by that, I mean, nominal, uh, doesn't mean that there is, uh, um, you can go a place, have find great zeal. Remember the problem is, uh, uh, zeal without knowledge. And uh, not only, uh, the, uh, Jesus mentions that, but uh, it's mentioned in the old Testament. Uh, the great danger is that you are, uh, you know, um, you really have you have a faith that doesn't tackle difficult, paradoxical, or mysterious elements uh, that are part of orthodoxy, part of a great the great tradition of Christianity. You know, I'll give you a simple one: what uh, Christopher West is pinned his uh, mission and calling in life on is our bodies tell God's story. And uh, the fact is, if our bodies tell God's story, and uh, and here, by the way, I'm quoting some of the church fathers, but uh, Eros love comes in the Bible before agape love. Now you'll find, I, at least in my experience, uh, Pat, the majority of Christians will go, ew. They won't have that. They won't have it. And so the, the, the challenge is if you start with, I'm going to believe what makes sense to me when I read the Bible. Because, I, again, we talked about this before, but Luther assumed this was the big break in 1517. If you have a brain, a Bible, and the Holy Spirit, you can interpret scripture for yourself because he felt illuminated by the Spirit with a, a singular insight that left isolated by itself was true. But it had a whole rich context in it, the just shall live by faith. So that he came up with just shall live by faith alone. Faith alone. That's all you need. Hmm. Now what happens is with within just a few years, I mean, it's the ball of yarn being tossed out of the yarn. It is unraveling. And he finds himself going, what? Don't you see what I see? And uh, Zwingli and the rest go, no. You told us by faith alone and here's how I've been illuminated and just the 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 explosion it's what uh, uh, Charles Taylor is we're a fan of Taylor says it creates this supernova which is an exploding star so I think that if you have all that in context Duthat is not taking on all of that in his book what he's taking on is 
I would suggest uh, we might be coming to the end of that unraveling of this ball of yarn. Now, what that means is you say, well, what would that look like? Well, if you toss the ball of yarn across the yard, you can sit there and say, well, this is everywhere, and it's a mile wide, but it's only an inch deep, which is a fair analysis, by the way, of the church, which I would say, again, is Protestant, Catholic, doesn't matter, evangelical, it's right across the boards. And so his, his hope, and he still has hope, it's a return to orthodoxy. But even that would require a return to uh, the church fathers. Well, I want to step back for a minute into the value for the reader. So you had started to go there and mm-hmm. asked another question. Um, yeah. But I, th- I think you were saying to help. it's helpful to understand kind of where we are in history, but also why we're here. Yeah. And I suspect it's going to get back to the question or maybe the the tension that even I, I have felt years ago, which is you look at, quote unquote, the culture and see these things and you, you sense some elements of where I'm at in my faith and some of the maybe the shortcomings of my church. And I'm, I'm guessing this book is helpful to illustrate a bit of how we got here, whether or not you, you read it and agree with the author's path forward. I'm guessing it has something to do with, with that. Is that true? That's right. And he, and the, you know, he spares no, um, you know, it's not, a, it doesn't come off as, as harsh at all. He would say, uh, Catholicism contributed to this mainland Christian, uh, mainland denominations contributed to this, uh, evangelical church contributes to it. And that what you really end up with in the end is a pick and choose faith based on nothing but individual preferences. That goes for most Catholics who would be nominal. Goes for most Protestants and mainline Protestants, of course, that the collapse there is even quicker. And uh, we go for uh, younger, uh, for evangelical churches. Uh, it's, it's, the benefit of reading this, if you are, say, you're an evangelical, is to understand that um, a pick-and-choose faith based on nothing but individual preferences would have been called, for at least 1,500 years in the church, heresy. And if you get nothing more out of the book than that, you'd have to wrestle with either God misled the church for 1500 years or 1800 years in the case of your protestant evangelical because protestant evangelicalism wasn't around till the 1800s so essentially you're saying for 1800 years the church was wrong and god deigned in his wisdom that the church would sort of come to her senses and wake up and really get serious about jesus beginning in the 1800s or, if you're in the Protestant Reformed tradition, you would probably say the same, except that it was 1,500 years where the church was wrong about these things. And it finally came, she finally came to her senses and started to get with it 500 years ago. Or, another view would be that the, maybe the church was right, but over the course of 1,500 years, went from some superlative heights to some terrible lows. Uh, But overall, the basic assumption 
of how we define church, gospel, Jesus, they essentially got it right. That would be what I would encourage people to wrestle with because uh, I don't think that the average Christian whom I know is, uh, what do they say, uh, in the internet, you know, nothing existed before 1995 or something like that, uh, or 2005. And so for most people, uh, really nothing existed in the church before, I don't know, say 1972. And the hence, hence we are in Acts 29 church, Acts 28 stops. And we see them gathering in uh, homes, gathering for worship, singing, hearing the word, sharing communion. That's what we do in our church. So we're Acts 29. And we do it in America, tens of thousands of different ways with different emphases as we understand church, as we have chosen to believe, which comes from the Greek heresis, where the church for 1500 years held, but that is heresy. Thank you.